Magic and Mythos. A deep dive into the history of magic with, with two, two modern mages. Hey everyone, welcome back for round two. Yay, Magic and Mythos. Uh, we're super excited for you to join us. Yeah, and this our our first true, actual, real episode of the podcast. I'm Katie. And I'm Amber. And we are going to start from the beginning today. So it, it, with this podcast, we are going to be delving into the history of magic from the very, very way beginning of recorded history, and then jump around. We're going to go Salem, New Orleans, ancient Egypt, come, all of it coming back up to who knows what. So we're starting today at the very beginning. And even though we're starting at the beginning, we're not going to go in chronological order. We're just going to jump around and do things as they come up. And as Katie mentioned, we're going to start at the beginning at Mesopotamia. And just forewarning here, we are scratching, very lightly scratching the surface. And there will be many more episodes at some point that delve deeper into a lot of the pieces of magic and myth in Mesopotamia. Because there's so much and it's thousands, it spans thousands of years. So we are definitely hitting just some main general points. I already have a list going of things that I want to dive back into. So just hear that. <laughs> yeah. Let's, so let's just do it. Let's jump right in. So Mesopotamia, the earliest civilization known to man, also known as the cradle of civilization, because historians truly see it as the foundation of our modern civilization. They achieved so much agriculture, animal herding and domestication. Did you know the earliest discovered wheel? I'm sorry, but wait, in ancient Mesopotamia, ancient I would have thought it 30, was like 3500 BC. That seems way later than I would have thought. It took yeah. us that long. I know. I'm I not know. surprised we are where we are. Yeah, that makes <laughs> sense. <laughs> That's um, crazy. And the biggest achievement is the development and use of writing. That's fair. It's pretty good. These clay tablets called cuneiforms and that's the language no so that's actually not the language that's actually so oh my god i'm learning so much already <laughs> i know it's exciting <laughs> so cuneiforms is these tablets that they would have either and the two there was quite a few languages that were written on cuneiform oh so it's like it's like papyrus or something exactly so it's like just the place in which the writing was held exactly Ooh. yes but you had different right. languages the two main languages on these cuneiforms are sumerian and Akkadian. That Assyrian. makes sense, yeah. So that's where we get all this information that we have on ancient Mesopotamia. And so interesting little fact, people usually tend to get a little confused when delving into this era of time. And do you know why? I don't. I'm nervous. <laughs> what is it? <laughs> Maybe I am confused. So Mesopotamia was actually... The Greek word for land between two rivers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tigris and Euphrates. Exactly. So Boom. Social studies. Thank you. 10th grade. What up? <laughs> so you have this region that was positioned in between the Tigris and Euphrates. And which is modern day, mostly Iraq and Kuwait with little parts of in Syria and Turkey. Oh, yeah. Tur okay. Yeah. Yeah. It gets a little confusing because Mesopotamia and Mesopotamians are actually multiple city-states and cultures that 
were in this region from roughly around 5000 BC to like 331, which is when Alexander conquered. Alexander That's the Great a conquered. a long time. Yeah. And it does. I mean, it makes me think of like ancient Greeks in which you're talking about the Spartans and the Trojans and the this and the that. And there's so many different types of people. Exactly. You talk about the Hellenistic period. You're not just talking about the Greeks. There's so many different cultures. And so that's exacting with Mesopotamia. You have the Sumerians, the Assyrians, the Akkadians, the Babylonians, and multiple others. Mm. Um, and some of the bigger ones, obviously, were the Sumerians. That's kind of where recorded history started. And so, yeah, that that's like a little interesting fact. People can sometimes get confused. So when you're talking about Mesopotamians, they're talking about all of these. So the through line of all these cultures is magic. And magic back then was intertwined with everything. It was a way to explain the world around them and help them to understand or explain the natural phenomenon that occurred. Oh, yeah. Like not, oh, let's pray that this doesn't ruin our entire farmland. Instead, it's like, oh, we have to do this preemptive ritual to appease so-and-so God because that's what they want and desire and here's an animal sacrifice or whatever. Exactly. <laughs> and so, and perfectly said, nature wasn't for them, wasn't separated from the divine. Yeah, there's no science at that point in the way that we understand it now. Exactly. So these gods and goddesses that they worshipped were the ones who controlled the things that happened around them. And so you're talking about a land that jumps in between unpredictable flooding and severe drought. Yeah, which would make me kind of feel pretty wild. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> I'd be looking for somebody to blame. Exactly. And so it only makes sense that the priests and priestesses and these magic practitioners who could communicate and hold specific rituals to placate the gods would be held in the highest of esteem. Yeah. And this is pre-kings thinking they were gods or be next to the kingliness is like next to godliness idea of like England and, you know, that much further along era. So, of course, they the kings are thinking, oh, I don't need I am not the messenger of the divine. This person next to me is the messenger of the divine. Exactly. That makes sense. Yeah. And then so you get you start getting into these rituals. And at one point in time, you start getting into the Assyrian king era where you have these specific rituals and spells and practices that become standardized. Right. Which is which is so interesting to me. So it's like formal texts for these like magic practices and rituals. Oh yeah, so you got to put it put it down in a textbook, pass it around. Everybody's <laughs> exactly. doing or in the a same. cuneiform. In the cuneiform, yeah. And everybody's doing the same you like funeral rite. This is the funeral rite of our our area. This it, is how we do it. Yeah. Exactly. And so the interesting thing is it still wasn't easily accessible to everyone. It was very specific. Um and there were magicians Today, you would call them magicians, but people who specialized and who had specialties that they trained in for years. So this was not just something that I was like, hey, I want to be a magician and I want to be an ashipu and I'm just going to go and become that. It was years of formalized training as well as secrets that were passed on for right. centuries. Yeah. Yeah. The secret magic school. Which sounds great. It sounds super cool. Harry Potter. I know. Harry Potter said, what? What? 
Hogwarts? <laughs> Is this where it comes from? No. Probably on some level. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's super fascinating because I do wonder. I mean, so much of it must have been orally transferred between people. And did I just, was that foreshadowing? Did yeah, I just, that was for, yeah. Went, spoiler alert. Yeah, it no, was pastorally. Well, that's the thing. So a lot of the information that we have um, comes from the cuneiform records that preserve descriptions of these specialists. Um, so like there's their technical knowledge, the spells they recited, the medicine they meet, made, and the knowledge necessary to interpret the signs of the natural world. And all, again, we're going to definitely need to have some more episodes where we delve deeper into this. But yeah, I, I'm going to kind of discuss a few of the specialties and quote unquote magicians that there were and kind of what they did and what what they specialized in. Oh, I'm so curious. Yeah, so mind you, there were quite a few magical practitioners, but some of the main ones, um, that's kind of what I'm going to be discussing. And there's actually a little bit of confusion. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish between the two healing professions. Mm -hmm. And so you have a magical practitioner called the Ashipu, and then you have a magical practitioner called the Asu. Okay. And the Asipu was responsible for performing all sorts of like non-private magical acts and like elite contacts. So such as, like you mentioned, funerary and mortuary rites. Oh, yeah. Okay, Uh, so that would be like they're the ones working in the castle, so to speak, the palace, uh, doing the funerary rites for the royals basically exactly perfectly said yeah um so they could be advisors to kings as well just like you said so very high up in the royal sector i guess you can say um and they were also kind of like exorcists modern day exorcists love it they basically gotta have them yeah exactly (laughs) you know those demons Uh (laughs) uh-huh you gotta do something about them barking up the wrong tree (laughs) exactly all right and so a shippu Treated diseases that happened supernaturally. Also, almost like psychologists. Is it like a mental? No, let's move no. on. No, <laughs> I think we're gonna move back. But there. I like that. No, but good it, try. Because it is ding, like ding ding ding. You are not the winner. <laughs> no chicken dinner. <laughs> Bummer. Anyway. So yeah. So but like think of them as exorcists. Okay. You know, if there was a ailment that someone could not figure out or or had some sort of explanation then it was a demon mm. or it was a meg- malignant spirit that needed yep. to be exercised and yeah. so that was in the reign of the ashipu that makes sense and then you have the asu and asus are what you would call modern day physicians okay so they would treat people who suffered from ailments using like salves and remedies and medicine and so it's quite interesting. There were many recorded instances where the Asu would actually practice their trade alongside the Ashipu. Okay. So we can delve more into this later, but I'm curious to, to get into like how that happened. So like where is the exorcism kind of practice happening while you're having the the physician so like you know you would exercise the demon and i'm guessing then the body would need to be healed so there would be salves and remedies and medicine and i remember reading something in this research about when something like that happened when a when a person would be taken over by a bad spirit they would for instance immolate 
or light on fire a, a lamb, like a sacrificial lamb, in exchange for the man's soul. So there was oh, this wow. kind yes. of battle. And, and that's why I brought up animal sacrifices earlier, because I remember reading that. And I do think, yeah, that they are, there's this a, attempt to appease the gods or appease the demon or spirit, which I appreciate the fact that they have incorporated so many ancestors and spirits and they're treating them all with a massive level of respect. Exactly. And it blows my mind. Massive, massive level of respect, uh, thorough training and mm-hmm. education. It's not something that was held lightly. It was something that was really thoughtful because the import, the well-being of a human was important. Right. And so that is... And preemptive, preventative medicine, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, yeah. So I actually have a little, because I wanted to read it, a little piece of a cuneiform that kind of explained, like, one of the rituals. Go for it. And it says, you plant three cedar shavings around the figurine. And I know we're going to talk, you're gonna talk you about more. that. I'll tell you more. Because I, I was like, Katie's going to have to ed- educate me on this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, the... Asipu or Asu. So there's a little bit of confusion of like who. Surround it with a magic circle. You put an unbaked fermenting vessel over it as a cover. Let Sama see the fermenting vessel by day. Let the Sars see it by night. For three days by day, the Asipu and sets up censer burning juniper before the Samas. By night, he scatters emmer flower before the stars of the night, before Samas and the stars. For three days, he repeatedly recites over it. You put it in the figurine, or I'm sorry, you put the figurine in a jar, and then you administer an oath to it. You bury it, the pot, in an abandoned waste. Interesting. So yeah, I want to hear more about these figurines, because I know you're going to talk about them. Absolutely. So that was just a little snippet I wanted to read because I thought it was interesting, kind of talking about their magic ritual and like what this was one of the texts that was like, this is how you do it. Right. And yeah, that it is like a recipe book or an instruction booklet. That's cool. Yeah. And so you have those and then you had a couple other, you know, magic practitioners that were big. You had Barus, which were diviners. And so these diviners solicited omens from gods and interpret the resulting signs. So they would often do this through all kinds of things like reading the entrails of a sheep. That's hot. That's it's probably, I mean, temperature-wise, sexy. probably pretty hot. Yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah. Um, or reading celestial or terrestrial phenomena. Okay. Uh, shooting stars probably or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, there must be some astrological, pre, pre-astrological stuff as yeah. we know it today. Exactly. Um, and they usually worked at, for a king as a court scholar or member of a military retinue. So again, you're seeing that all these magic practitioners very high on the hierarchy. Like yeah, diviners would be very useful for military. I can only imagine. Yeah, is uh, this s- natural phenomena tells me to go that- left instead of right. right. <laughs> Exactly. When you're bringing the troops in. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. And this is going to, I divine that this will be a good battle for you if you do this thing with this other. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then you had, and excuse my pronunciation, you had the Tupsaru. So you had the scribes, which makes sense. So these were the scribes who wrote on cuneiform. 
Um, you had Kalu, so Lament Singers. I would kind of convey them as similar to bards. Uh-huh. Or the, what do they call it? The the wailing uh, in, I think, the Celtic or oh, Irish. Yes. Yeah, there is beautiful, beautiful wailing singers that I can't remember the names. I know exactly I, what Something like about. Lamenters, yeah. Yes. Um, we'll have to mm-hmm. write a note and figure out what that is. Yeah. And so... Like I mentioned before, all these specialists, they were beneficiaries of years of training and centuries of knowledge production. So all these incantations, their rituals, they were passed down in secret for over the course of several centuries. So nothing to take lightly. They they were very particular with how they handled magic and yeah. how seriously they took it. It's so It's so respectful. I appreciate that. So that is leading us into some of the tools that were used by these magicians that I'm going to talk about um, and touch a little bit on ritual. But I want to start with kind of the biggest element of protective magic. Um, These are these big monumental statues. The Lamasu are the the kind of the zodiac constellation uh, representatives, they're hybrid animals. Are they the ones with the the wings, the long wings and the long body? Yeah, it's like there often were horses or bulls that had the head of a man yes. and big long wings. Uh, you can also see the goddess Lama who is uh, dressed in this long fringe dress and has big wings coming off the back. And you've definitely seen this image. I, I realized what it was when I was researching. Uh, but then they also have uh, the llamas who are basically a human bull, eagle, lion, and some mix therein. And as I was doing this research as well, it struck me, which is wild because I've been reading tarot for so long, but it struck me that those were the animals represented on the Wheel of Fortune card. That's amazing. You're you're taking an image from thousands of years ago, 6,000 years ago, and you're, you use it in your daily life, like Which is today. wild. And I, I'm sure that there are a million tarot readers who are like, yeah, no duh, of course that's what that's from. I didn't, I had never put that together. So that felt pretty important to me to, to realize while I was doing this. Uh, and yeah, so these giant monumental sculptures and statues were not only displays of massive power by the kings, they were often placed outside of throne rooms, like uh, in Sargun II's throne room, there were seven of these Lamasu that flanked that space, uh, as well as some heroes holding giant lions, um, just to kind of both prove his immense power and also provide protection for him from, again, malevolent spirits, which seem to be plaguing which they still seem to be plaguing all of us. Um, 2020. Exactly. And they, yeah, were associated with uh, bolstering the king's reign and being these representatives that helped the kings to uh, hold on to their power. That's interesting. I mean, I'd be curious to know why, and I don't even know if that, like, it's possible to find out, like, why these specific animals? Yeah, I don't know. I, I... I'm going to write that down and look at it because I'm really curious. Uh, But it does, I mean, it reminds me of so many enormous sculptures that we see in ancient civilizations. I mean, you have the The giant pyramid, the Sphinx, uh, the pyramids in in 
the South American, Central American countries. And even today, I mean, even in like Hinduism, you have this connection of human and yeah, animal. hybrid animals. Hybrid animal, yeah. Yeah, and you can even see, I mean, just this idea of these enormous statues that are meant to really very much convey power and but other things as well i mean i mean comfort welcoming protection all these things like it makes me think of the statue of liberty which is oh, right that's a, okay that's interesting i yeah. would not have made that connect or even i mean these huge yeah the eiffel tower and and the washington monument i mean they're not animals but they do make me think of you know this is an expression of our power but it's also here to provide protection so I see that represented. Symbolizes our culture as well. Absolutely, yeah. And going from very large to very small, here I can talk about the figurines, which yes. you mentioned a little bit. Uh, so modest homes that were not enormous palaces. Uh, so almost everyone else. So all the little peasants. <laughs> all the little peasants, yeah. They would often bury clay figures of gods and animals in these same hybrid uh, Lamasu under their floors or doorways was often in like thresholds under the doorways and corners of the house. That's interesting. I it, The burying piece is really interesting because usually, you know, I know of figurines that are put on an altar right. or that's how we at least modern. I know I think about figurines. all the Buddhas I've ever seen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or the Ganeshas. Yeah. But yeah, so it's interesting, this idea of burying it. Right. And it was because those spots in the house, so doorways, corners, were the most permeable by spirits, so spiritually oh. permeable. And that was where these dark spirits could, or playful spirits or tricksters or whoever could come into the homes. So they wanted to protect. Often these figurines included a dog, which is really ah. sweet. Uh, so clearly, dogs, dogs have are always, fantastic always and they've been guardians. Always. I mean, uh, I don't. I wouldn't, you know, bury our production manager Eva per se. I would, I would hope not. Absolutely, put a figurine of her all over my house. Uh, she's incredible, and yeah, I mean, this to me, we definitely see so many figurines like this to this day. The practice of burying them might be different, although I grew up in an Episcopal household, which is close to Catholicism in a lot of ways. It's Christian, and my mom always had a St. Anthony figurine, which was, you know, the size of the palm of my hand, and when you lost something, you would bury the St. Anthony and say a kind of oath to it and ask him to help you find the thing, and then you supposedly would find it within the next few hours or days. And it often worked in a way that was creepy enough for me to believe it. So I think there's a little bit of magic in burying figurines. I'm not opposed to trying it in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why not? Yeah. And I mean, it also it makes me think of anything that we sort of have that's small that reminds us of something or adds a little extra magic. And um, I'll talk a little bit about amulets in a second. But the other thing that was often buried in corners of houses and cemeteries were incantation bowls, which are also known as demon bowls devil trap bowls or magic bowls and these i'm sure you've seen them before they are not too large but they have this big spiral that starts from the rim and then goes in down to the center interesting and it kind of sounds like the slow eater bowl that i have for eva actually it's kind of like the slow eater bowls exactly but it's inked like the on connection there to modern day <laughs> oh eva and yeah, so these these were used 
they were buried upside down in an effort to capture, like prevent an evil spirit from rising. Like a dream catcher. Like a dream catcher. Just that just came, that just connected Yeah, for to me. get them all tied up in something. Exactly, yeah. And I, I, mean, I, I, did, I haven't looked too deeply into it because again, it's on my list of things to research further, which I imagine we're just going to have lists and lists and lists oh, of yeah. these things. Lists but, within lists within lists. Which I love. And that, yeah, so they... There's um, just so much to talk about. I know, right? It makes me think of, you know, these these big spirals that would happen. So it was a often a lighter colored bowl with a darker spiral. Okay. And so to me, it almost feels like maybe they were used to confuse the demons or hypnotize them or mesmerize oh, them or, or get them caught in the same way like a dream catcher would catch demons or spirits in knots and things uh yeah so that's interesting they would bury them and often again in in cemeteries with the recently deceased as well to keep their spirit where it needs to be and to protect them from not other good spirits hey i would take any of that i know if if it gives me even a chance even a chance of protecting me i'm there i I got it give me those demon balls bury it Bury it with me. Ten. <laughs> I'll take ten. And so the last thing I want to talk about are amulets. And this to me is is almost the clearest representation in our society right now. So I think of like rosary beads. Yes. And I often wear a necklace with amethyst in it because it's a healing crystal and it makes me feel like I have a little something in my pocket to, to hold on to and that'll add a little extra healing power to my day. And... This, I think you see that everywhere, right? Like everyone is wearing crystals on some level. We have a diamond on our finger sometimes. We've got. Yeah, which is a representation and a symbolism for who knows what. Who knows what? (laughs) (laughs) Marriage. For mariage. (laughs) Yeah. You know, that also, you talk about amulets, and, you know, I think about the Muslim Tavis, which is like an amulet that you wear to protect from evil spirits. Right. You know, they write a scripture of the Quran in a little piece of paper. They roll it up and they put it in this necklace, this pendant. So that's yeah, exactly like that. Really similar. So exactly it, you know, uh, different stones, different figurines, different amulets had different meanings and, and reasons to use them and different types of protection. But all in all, it was a really effective way to protect someone in their you know, bringing it back around everyday life because yeah. it really was just something that everybody did and no one questioned. I mean, maybe they did, but we don't know about, about those it. people. I don't think they, <laughs> maybe there were some who were like crystal schmristals, but I'm sure. yeah, we but... don't know where they're at or what happened to them, but exactly. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so in thinking about these rituals that we have been talking about, I found a list of love spells Oh my god. Which are very vulgar. Okay. And I can't wait. This um, this has to happen and it has to happen now. I know, I know I'm terrified. Okay. Um I'm Don't already be blushing. Terrified. I'm blushing. Okay, let me find them here. So these I got from a, a book by Benjamin R. Foster from Distant Days, Myths, Tales, and Poetry of Ancient Mesopotamia which was written in um, the ancient time of 1995. Oh, that's a long time ago. (laughs) So this one... They had writing back then? I am just going to go for it. Um, This is a a love spell that Mr. Foster is calling I Have Made a Bed. So this is a woman's voice trying to conquer her beloved. Oh, wow. So trying to get him to get himself together and get up on that. Okay, let's hear it. Okay. 
Potency, potency, potency. I have made a bed for potency. What Ishtar does for Dumuzi, what Nane does for her lover, what Ishara does for her mate, let me do for my lover. Let the flesh of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, tingle. <laughs> let his penis stand erect. May his ardor not oh. flat night or day. By command of the capable lady Ishtar, Nane, Gazbaba, Ishara. So she's basically, you know, um, so what she has I'm said. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm uh, potent after hearing that. I know. I'm a little, I'm a little <laughs> potent okay. after hearing that. Uh, where's my lover at? <laughs> um yeah, so this is like a little bit of uh, lady power. I thought that was great, you know, reaching out to to the goddesses to ask them to make it a real special night for her, you know. And I I don't have I don't see there's anything nothing wrong. With wrong. That. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, we got some good ones here. There's something about a liver being joyful, swelling up like a dog. Oh, I think you know what we mm. might need to have an episode solely on like love spells write that down yes and episode about love assistant. spells and Eva, write that down <laughs> yeah i love that idea i mean these are super fun and they i think you know it's all amazing this idea of like love and sexuality and magic and how all of these things are intertwined so we will definitely delve deeper into that but i thought those were fun now that was really fun and i look forward to hearing more in the near future anytime <laughs> We'll read them later. <laughs> so to end every podcast, we've decided to explore some type of magic, leaning heavily probably on tarot cards because that's where my magic language lives. And I think it's just easy, easily translatable over... Over audio? Yeah. Yeah. I imagine we'll interchange it with other magical practices, but for now, we're going to do a little bi-weekly... Terror reading. reading. Yeah. I'm excited. So I will hold the deck and then Amber, if you will, cut the deck for me. Yes. With your non-dominant hand. Uh, the thank hand. You. Thank you for reminding me. That is uh, less connected to the material realm. All right. And hand that back to me. Perfect. And with that same non-dominant hand, mm -hmm. if you'll pull a card and keep it face down. No, not that one. I'm just kidding. Oh, I did it wrong. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. All right. Here we go. It's strength. That's Aww. a great card. I love it. It's, it's like perfection. Also the Leo card. And we are recording this right on the cusp of August. And we are in Leo. the beginning of Leo season right now. So it feels appropriate. I am a Leo rising. So mm -hmm. I'm going to just start from what I know, which is... Uh, this woman here in strength is a badass bitch. Yes. And she knows what she's doing. Thank you. She's got it. She has tamed the lion. And I think for us, for this period of time as well, where we are in the world, we all need a little extra strength, a little extra backup in that our is right. internal arsenal uh, of, you know, we're dealing with coronavirus. We're dealing with a political upheaval kind of constantly. Um, we're dealing with the racial justice protests and Black Lives Matter, um, especially here in Portland, where we're from. And I think this is a good reminder to understand that you have so much strength inside of you already, and it's possible to tame all the lions in your life if you remember how strong you are 
what strength means is different to every person. And I, it just lives inside of you, whether you like it or not, I yeah. say. whether you remember it or not, it's exactly. just about remembering it. And here we're using the Rider weight deck and we'll post a picture of this on Instagram and Twitter and the like. Uh, but this woman here who is in flowy white robes and is petting this otherwise ferocious lion, uh, who has his tongue out licking her. It's a very lovely image of strength and quiet. I think there's a lot of peace in it. Uh, she has the uh, infinity loop infinity on her head. Infinity loop, yes. And that to me is is again this reminder of you don't you can't go anywhere. You can't lose strength. You keep gaining more and more. You always have it. It's always within you. Even if you feel like you can't you can't make it through the day, it's it just means that your your strength is hiding a little bit and you just have to tap back into it. I love that. And I and thank you for bringing up, you know, it is kind of important to mention all the kind of craziness that is going on right now in 2020. Um, but yeah, a, a great reminder to that just as things have passed, this will pass and we just have to remember about the strength within ourselves, but also the strength that we're surrounded by to yeah. strengthen our community. Yeah. The strength in our community. Yeah. And maybe that's a little bit of our job right now is to both find ways to access the strength within ourselves, access the strength in our community and also be strong for others if, and when that's possible. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can record it again if you want to say it all. Though. Um, well, that's uh, it. I, yeah. That's episode one in the books. Thank you for joining us. I mean, we have, uh, let's just be honest, we've been a little freaked out. We're, you know, we're new to this whole situation, but we're super appreciative that you guys join us on this journey. Yeah, that you tuned in. And that I hope that you continue to join us. And, and I guess before we kind of sign off, I just want to remind you guys, um, give a, give you some of our social media information. You know, make sure you check us out on Instagram at at Magic and Mythos. That's our Instagram handle. Um, our Twitter handle is at underscore Magic and Mythos. That's all spelled out. So M A G I C A N D M Y T H O S. And our Facebook is at Magic and Mythos Podcast. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and all the other fancy places to listen to podcasts. And if you're really into what you're hearing, please make sure to give us a five-star review. That helps other people find us as well. Yeah, kicks us up on the lists. And also, if you have any comments or questions or ideas for us to cover, please send us an email at magicandmythospodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also visit our website, which is magicandmythospodcast.com. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I know. I got to think about it. All right. Well, until next time, remember, remember as above, so below. <laughs> <laughs>